Let me, uh, let me ask you this question. What is the silliest fight you ever got into? Anybody got a silly fight? Just something dumb. You're like, why are we even fighting over this? Anybody been there? Maybe with your spouse, your kids, your, your, your parents? Anybody ever been there? Uh, well, my worst fight, my silliest fight was over a word. Now, let me tell you, my wife is very competitive. Uh, you, you may not know her. She's very competitive. Um, but I'm more competitive. And so you put two competitive people together, it doesn't go well. So uh, there was a time in our marriage where we used to play Scrabble together. That game we don't play anymore because it doesn't end well. Maybe you've been there. But we're, we're playing Scrabble this one time. And of course, you know, because I'm such a godly man, and because I'm sacrificial, I'm letting her lead. I'm letting her be ahead of me because, again, I'm just, I'm such a godly man. I, I let her be ahead. And, and she puts the word down press, P-R-E-S-S. And I'm looking at my little tiles, and I'm like, what do I do with this stinking X? X is the worst letter to get, right? It's just the worst in Scrabble. And I'm looking, and I'm like, wait a second. I see P-R-E-S-S, and there's one of those triple letters right in front of it, you know? And so I'm like, I got it. So I put the word espresso, E-X-P-R-E-S-S-O. And I stand up and start dancing. Winner, winner, chicken dinner, yeah, 50-point move. What you going to do? Okay, I'm a little competitive, right? I'm like, yes, I'm going to win. You can't stop this. And very calmly and collectively, she says, that's not a word. I'm like, what are you talking about? Espresso, coffee, I'm the winner. Triple word, baby. And she said, Kevin, that's not a word. And I'm like, it's a word. And she's like, Kevin, it's not a word. You spell that word with an S, not an X. And I said, hold on, Sam. I speak for a living. I certainly know whether this is the word or not. It is espresso. And she said, you can't count those points. And I'm like, why are you expressing yourself with so much anger? Express. And she says, well, you can express yourself on the couch. And I'm like, I'm going to express myself on this table. And I flip the table over. Like, what are you talking about? I didn't really flip the table over, but I wanted to in that moment. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but do you ever get in that wife? Do you ever, do you ever get in that fight with your wife? where you get in the argument and then it's like the silent treatment for the next day. It's a silent, you're not really talking. And, and like, and so you, you, you go through the hallway and you time it really badly and you have to like walk past each other and you're like, oh, excuse me. I'm just trying to get my espresso. Excuse me, sorry, pardon me. You don't talk for a couple, maybe that's just me. I, I don't know how that works out. <laughs> I'll just say, would you pray for my wife? He's, he's, which she's married to an idiot, right? She is smarter than me. I know it. She knows it. Now you all know it as well. Uh, I will still spell it espresso because I'm going to hold my line. I'm that competitive. I love my wife. She gets this opportunity to practice forgiveness all the time, and I'm really thankful I'm helping her grow her faith to learn to grow in forgiveness. How many of us have been in a dumb fight over something totally silly? And we're like, this is not a big deal. But we allow little things to create division, 
little things to create disunity, to create all sorts of problems over things little like a stinking word. And that is true in relationships, and that is also true in churches. I know this is where we get a little uncomfortable. In churches, we can create lots of problems over little tiny issues that don't really matter in the long term. In fact, years ago, there was a church in Dallas, a church in Dallas, and they had one of these divisions. They had a a disagreement, a disagreement, and it grew into this big thing, and and the church split. And so you got these two factions, and they're fighting for the property of the, uh, of the church building. Who's going to keep the building? A, Team A, or Team B? And so they take it to court. They go to court, and they're arguing their case out. And as they're in court arguing about which, uh, which faction gets to keep the building, the newspaper sent an investigated reporter to go and investigate it. And they're like, what's going on with these churches? And, and the reporter writes an article, and you know, the investigative reporter gets down through the nitty and gritty and like, what is the root problem here? You know what the root problem of this church was? There was a leader in the church. They had a church potluck. You know the potluck where you bring all your food like we're going to do next week? Bring some food. We'd love to celebrate with you. But at the church potluck, this leader is sitting next to a child and the leader got a smaller piece of ham than the child and got mad about it. And that was the root of their disagreement, a piece of ham. That's worse than espresso, right? That is so silly. And one of those things you think about is like, how much discredit did that do to the cause of Christ, to the mission of God, to the mission of the church, because we're arguing over a piece of ham, Allowing that to create such disunity over ham. We're not even talking steak. We're talking ham, right? We're in the book of Acts uh, for the majority of this year. And the book of Acts is a phenomenal book. We're looking at how the early church became uh, a movement. It wasn't just an institution, this place where you come and you receive religious services, but the church actually became a movement that was affecting everything around them. It was, it was changing lives, changing families, changing neighborhoods. It was changing the city. And we're looking at this book because I want some of that right here. I want the church to become a movement that impacts our families, our schools, our city. We are five chapters in. And it's been amazing. The Holy Spirit was poured out on the believers. The early church armed simply with the Spirit of God and the message of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. That's what they're armed with. And they are changing everything around them. Jerusalem is a city of approximately 40,000 people. And at this point, there are 11,000 converts to Christianity in this church. Like that is remarkable. That is amazing. The church is on fire. But what happens is when God begins to work, whether this is when God's working in our lives, whether this is God working in our families, whether this is God working in our church, whether this is God working in our city, as soon as God begins to do a work, Satan says, hold up, I'm going to do everything I can to stop what God is doing. 
I think about these young people up here telling how God did this amazing work at retreat here a couple weeks ago. Listen, when you make that decision to go all in for God, listen, you teenagers, Satan will do everything in his power to stop you from, from walking with God. He doesn't want that at all. You can know that opposition is going to come. And we've seen this in the book of Acts because as soon as the church gets on fire, what does Satan do? He brings them persecution. We've seen this in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5 last week where Satan, goes, uh, Satan gets the authorities to arrest the disciples and bring them into court and beat them and threaten them and say, listen, you cannot keep preaching in the name of Jesus. That's Satan trying to stop them. But what does it do? It actually emboldens those disciples. They become more passionate about sharing the message of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection. Then we saw Acts chapter 5 where Satan actually filled Ananias and Sapphira. He, 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 he filled these two people to cause them to lie to the Holy Spirit and to lie to the church. And they're trying to, they're, they're showing their hypocrisy. They show up to church and try and look more spiritual than they really are. Look how great and godly we are. We're so wonderful. Look at all we do. And God's like, you're lying. And because hypocrisy, hypocrisy is such a threat to the church, in a moment, God takes their life and drops them dead on the floor to say, listen, hypocrisy cannot be tolerated in the church. I don't think any of us that have been church in a long time, can we say amen to that? Isn't hypocrisy destructive to what God's trying to accomplish in our churches and in our world? But Satan realizes, hey, I'm going to keep pressing. I cannot allow the mission of God to, to continue. I can't allow the church to be on fire. And so we're going to see his third attempt here in Acts chapter 6. Our text shows that Satan gets a group of, of Christians in the church to start grumbling and complaining, creating disunity in the church. See, I would say that if, if, if Satan's number one tactic to, to stop the, the the mission of God is hypocrisy. Maybe Satan's number two tactic is to get us Christians to be arguing with one another, to be grumbling and complaining, to point fingers at one another, and to create disunity in the church. This is where through our text, hey, listen, if, if the church is going to stay on mission, if the church is going to be a movement that impacts everything around us, if we're going to impact our world, We've got to fight against disunity. We've got to fight against the grumbling and complaining and trust the organal structure that God has given the church. That's going to teach us to prioritize the word of God, to prioritize the mission, and to serve one another in ministry. It's as simple as that. Let's jump in. Starts in verse 1 and says, In these days, the disciples were growing in number again. This is what we've already talked about. There's an excitement in the church. There's lots of, of positive things happening. People are being saved. People are getting baptized. It's exciting. But Satan's like, nah, I can't allow this to continue. So it says a, in verse 1, A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, Contextually, here, here, here's what we've got going on. In Jerusalem, the majority of people, the large majority of people, these were native Aramaic speakers. They spoke Aramaic, and they were, they were of this certain race. This is who we are. But there was this minority of people in Jerusalem that were the Hellenists. These were Greek-speaking Jews who grew up outside of Israel. 
They, 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 so there's, there's differences between the two groups of people. Now, naturally, what happens is when you bring two groups of people together, they have different backgrounds. They have different ways of doing life, different experiences, different preferences, different languages, different ways to worship. There's a lot of differences. And these two people, these two groups are brought together in the church, and things are going really well. But even though they're becoming, even though these people have become Christians, it doesn't magically erase their preferences or their prejudices towards one another. And what's so beautiful is in the early church, you remember the story we read a couple weeks ago about Barnabas? In the early church, you had these Christians who were so passionate about the church, about the people of God, sold out to the people of God, not just the mission, but to the people. And so they're taking their land, they're taking their property, and they're selling it, and they're giving the proceeds to the church. That way the church can meet the needs of the people of the church. Like, it was remarkable. It's awesome to see the church function like that. And that is where this problem happens. Because apparently, apparently as people were donating this money to the church, the church was like, hey, we need to start a Meals on Wheels program, right? We've got all these widows. We've got to feed them. And so what the church does is they buy a taco truck, and they're driving around to all the widows and saying, hey, here's some tacos for you, and, and here's some tacos for you. And this is where the problem arises. The Hellenists are like, wait a second. Wait a second. Why do, get, why do they get the chicken tacos and we only get the lengua tacos? Anybody ever trick you to have a lengua taco? Like, maybe that's your thing. Like, I, you know what I'm talking about. I, I went and got tacos with a friend once, and he's like, I'll order your tacos for you. And I'm like, wow, what is this? And he's like, lengua. That's tongue. It's a little different. It was good. It was just not what I was expecting. That's uh, side rabbit trail. Sorry. Squirrel. Uh, so the Hellenists are like, wait a second. Why, why are the native Jews, why are they getting more food than we are? It doesn't seem fair. Something's going on. Again, one of the things I always want to teach is as we're reading Scripture, one of the things we should ask ourselves is, why is this happening? Questions. I think the question for me is, what is the root problem here? What's the problem? Is it really about one person getting more food than another? Is it racism? Is it favoritism? Like, what's the root problem? And listen, all of those things are real and probably need to be dealt with. But the greater issue here, I think the root issue, is this disagreement becomes a threat to the unity and to the stability of the church. That this issue about who's getting more food becomes a distraction from what they're supposed to be about, which is making disciples. You see, this early church, as we've spent five weeks looking at the early church, they're characterized by three things. They're characterized by the power of the Holy Spirit. They're characterized by the Word of God. And they're characterized by this incredible community that the church was. The, the church was... This is what the church is supposed to be like. Where even though we come from different backgrounds and different races, and we have different financial situations and different educations, when we come to know Jesus, like God knits us together that we become one. This is why the church is called a family. At least that's what we're supposed to be. And this is what we see in the beginning of the, uh, beginning of the church. They're come together and they're, they're living life together. They're studying scripture together. They're having meals together in each other's homes. They're praying for one another. They're saying, hey, you're going through something hard. Let me walk through that with you. 
Hey, you've got a financial need. Let me meet that financial It's beautiful what the early church has become. It's a picture for what we're striving to be as, as our church. See, our world doesn't have that kind of unity. Our world is broken up into tribes, right? We, we, we gather with people who are just like ourselves. So we've got the white and the brown. We've got the rich and the poor. We've got the Democrats and Republicans. We've got dog people and those other people. We've got Seahawks and all those other people who like all those other weaker teams. And we put ourselves in tribes. This is my tribe. This is my people. This is where I belong. This is what separates us. But when we place our faith in Jesus, when we become a Christian, like we have this greater thing that unites us. That we have more in common in our faith in Jesus than we do in all those other things. And this unity of the church is so important that we understand like we, we belong to one another. That's one of the, the core values of our church is the fact that we belong together. Which means when you're going through something, you're not going through it alone. You've got some people with you. And we belong together also means that we need to fight to belong together. Because there's going to be times when my wife can't spell espresso right. And we've got to figure out how not to argue over who's spelling the word right. Because the unity of the church, man, it shapes how the world sees us. When the church is the church the way it's supposed to be, the world looks and says, man, there's something different about them. In fact, this is what Jesus said. In John 17, the night that Jesus was betrayed, he prayed for us. He prayed for us, the Christians in our day. And he said, God, would they be one? Would they be one so that the world would know that you have sent me? He said in John 13, 14, he said, uh, they will know you are Christians by your Love. Like when we are the church and we, we function like this, when there's a unity. Do you know that speaks to the world around us? And they're like, what is going on that these people who don't belong together, these people who are like, there's some Seahawk fans and some of those other people, and these people from different ethnicities and different financial backgrounds, they're coming together and they're eating meals together and they're praying for one another and they're living life with one another. There's something about that that's different. The unity of the church is a testimony of what God does when he brings the world to himself. Unity matters. But the problem is that we have these disagreements in the church. Like, who's getting more food from the taco truck? And oftentimes what we do is we revert back to our flesh. We revert back to our flesh. We look out for number one. And that's the problem. For us to prioritize the unity of the church, we actually have to live according to the Spirit. We have to walk in the Spirit and live out perhaps the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. Those things should be the things that characterize how we interact with one another. That when we disagree over uh, my wife spelling a word wrong, that we can still show each other patience and grace in that. Well, this disagreement rises and it's not going well. There's a problem. 
And the word gets to the apostles, and they recognize, hey, this is a serious issue. The witness of the church is at stake because of this disunity, because of the arguments going on. So it says in verse 12 that the 12, excuse me, verse 2, it says the 12, they summoned the church. They gathered the church, and what do you think they're going to do? They gather the church. What do you think they're going to do? Maybe try and sweep the problem under the rug? How many of us have been in churches that have done that? Oh, there's some problems. We're going to sweep it under the rug and pretend it doesn't exist. Maybe, maybe they're going to create a committee who's going to investigate both sides and figure out which side is right. Maybe they'll have a committee that determines what is the best way to serve food and to make it fair. I mean, that's what churches do, right? We create committees. Maybe the apostles, maybe they're going to say, you know what? You know what? There's too much arguing. We're just going to close down the Meals on Wheels. No more taco truck. That's not what they do. It says in verse 2, as they summoned the church, they said, it is not right for us to give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. See, what they're saying is that Meals on Wheels program, it's a good program. It's doing good stuff. But we can't let this argument distract us from the main thing. What is the main thing for the church? What does the church exist for? Jesus told us, is it not to spread the gospel? I mean, isn't that the mission of the church? Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. He said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Church, this is your mission to, to make Christ known throughout the world. And they're saying, listen, listen, listen. For us to do that, we've got to be able to teach the word of God because scripture says in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. They're saying, listen, listen, we get it. There's some problems here. But we still got to prioritize the word of God. We got to prioritize our, our ministry of, of teaching and preaching. And now, I, I will say when I read that, I, I saw these guys and they're like, hey, you know, it's not right for us to, to give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. And anybody think that sounds a little arrogant? Like, who are these guys? They think they're so much better than everybody else that they can't go and serve tables anymore. They can't drive the taco truck because they're too important now because they're apostles. That's not really the case. Because again, when this whole Meals on Wheels program started, remember the story was when Barnabas, when he sold his property and the other apostles, the other disciples, when they sold their property and brought the money, where'd they lay it at? Acts 4.35, they laid it at the apostles' feet and the apostles then distributed to those who had need. See this Meals on Wheels program? You know who started it? These apostles. They're the ones that said, hey, this is important. We need to, to do this. They knew their Bible. They knew it was important for them to look out for those that are struggling. But the problem is, is as the church kept growing, they just couldn't keep up. There was too much going on. They had to prioritize. Now, see, I don't know about you, but like my Achilles heel in leadership is I get distracted so easily, which is why I tell stories that have nothing to do with the message because I'm like, squirrel, squirrel. And so I'll go into work and I've got a thousand things that need to be done. I've got a thousand things that need to be done. And then I walk into the auditorium. I'm like, hey, look, there's a new toy. I'm going to go play with it. It's not a toy. It's an instrument. Jaylene bought it for whatever she's going to do. And I'm like, I want to go play with that. I'm like, I get distracted. There's a, there's a book written by Stephen, Stephen Covey. And he said this. He said, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. 
which is saying, hey, we've got to prioritize what is the most important thing. Like some of you guys, your list people, I love y'all. My wife, I love it when she makes lists for me because then I can know how to prioritize. Listen, the church has to learn to keep the main thing the main thing. And the apostles are saying, listen, the apostles, they're saying the meals on wheels is important, but we need to keep the main thing the main thing. We got to prioritize the preaching of the word and praying for people. But because it's important, because the ministry of the meals on wheels is important, they are going to create a, a structure for the church. Verse 3. He says, therefore, pick from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and full of wisdom, who will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said, it pleased the whole church. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and these other guys whose names we butcher. And verse 6, they set these before the apostles, and they prayed and lay hands on them. The structure was, we're going to choose seven men. And these guys, their role is to continue the ministry of the Meals on Wheels program. It's good because it allows the ministry to those widows to continue, but it also allows the apostles to keep their attention on the main thing, preaching the word of God and, and making disciples. In fact, when it describes these seven men, I want you to notice the, the, the qualifications. The qualifications. He says, choose seven men who are of good repute. Means they had a good reputation. Let me ask you, what are you known for? What's your reputation? What are you known for? Are you known as a servant? Are you known as a grumbler? Are you known as a guy who sits in the pew and, and, and just receives and doesn't give? What is your reputation? It says they're to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. And I want to be clear, that doesn't mean these guys are perfect. Being full of the Spirit means those fruit of the Spirit we talked about, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the gentleness, the meekness, self-control. That means these things are continually to grow in their life. This is where we talk about, as a church, we, we celebrate progress, not perfection. None of us, we're not expecting any of us to like have it all figured out and display those things perfectly. But the goal is for everyone that's in this room is that increasingly those things show up in our life more and more and more. We're becoming more like Christ. These guys are not identified in this text as being deacons, but oftentimes we look and say, this is the first deacons of the church. And out of these seven... There's two guys that are notable. Uh, Philip. Philip is going to become an evangelist. He's going to take the gospel message all to different places and, and, and preach about Jesus. And also we read about Stephen. Stephen's a guy. We're going to look at him in two weeks on Mother's Day. Why are we talking about Stephen and his martyr on Mother's Day? I have no clue. It just happened to be how it worked out. So moms, that's what we're going to do. Both these guys were capable leaders. Both these guys... We're going to see do some great things for the kingdom of God. But what is our reputation? Servants. I mean, I think about, I think about, you know, they'd look and say, you mean, we just need to serve tables? We need to drive a taco truck? Do you know how gifted of a leader I am? Do you know what I'm capable of? That's beneath. No, they didn't say that. They said, what does the church need? 
Hey, how can we, how can we allow the church to focus on the main thing and help the leaders focus on that? And if we got to serve tables, then if that's what it takes, we're going to serve tables. I don't know if any of them actually had a spiritual gift that said, we drive taco trucks and that's our spiritual gift. I don't think they were passionate about it. But simply there was a need that needed to be done in the church and the servants, their reputation of being a servant said, hey, someone needs to do this. I'll go do it. And we see that organizational structure. And because of that, verse seven, it says the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly. And a great number of priests became obedient to the faith. That is the result of the church working together. Is we see, again, the power and the presence of God being poured out on the early church. Lives are continue to be redeemed. Families continue to be strengthened. And the city is continue to be transformed. The power of God continues to change lives. Because the church said, we're going to figure this out. We're not going to keep arguing over this. We're going to just figure it out. We're going to trust the organizational structure. We're going to jump in and serve. We're going to value the word of God. Again, we understand what the church's mission is. The church, we exist to make disciples of all nations. And the church, then in that case, we are a living organism. We are alive. We are growing. We are maturing. I think about where we were 10 years ago as a church and where we are today. Praise God, the church is growing and becoming stronger and, more, and creating better. I mean, that's what, that's what churches do. We're living organisms. We grow and overcome our challenges. In the early church, it required for them to have some intentionality. We're going to change how we do ministry. We're going to make some different systems. That way, the widows are still being taken care of. The ministry is still happening. And we're still going to prioritize and keep the main thing the main thing. In fact, this is our, our summary for this message. Here's the, here's the big idea, the takeaway. The mission of God moves forward and the unity of the church is protected when the church prioritizes the main thing. And here this selflessly serves one another. That is where we see the power of God. As to how we fight that disunity, how we fight those disagreements as we focus on the main thing and we're willing to serve one another selflessly. A couple of takeaways and then we'll be done. Uh, takeaways, I, I chose the word value because I think when we value a certain thing, that means we're willing to fight for it. We're willing to prioritize it and do whatever it takes. So takeaway number one, we've got to value the unity of the church. We've already talked about how beautiful the early church was living life together, supporting one another, walking through life together, having meals. I mean, it is, it, is, it is a beautiful picture. And honestly, it's a picture that church has been striving for ever since that day. We want to be like that. It is amazing. The reality is, that doesn't happen automatically. It's hard for the church to figure these things out. Because again, the church is bringing people from diverse backgrounds, different experiences. We all have scars that we bring in. We have preferences for the way that we things, want things done. And even as Christians, guess what? We still have some hangups. We still have some of those rough areas in our life. 
And so we come into the church and we're trying to do this church thing and guess what happens? Somebody's going to hurt our feelings. Anybody been there? Somebody's going to make us feel minimized. We don't get the recognition that we think we deserve. The church doesn't do things the way that we think they should be done. Somebody gets more ham than I get. And we have these problems, these disagreements. And what do we do? We begin to, cr- we begin to cr- grumble. We begin to complain. And pretty soon we see this disunity creating. We see the damage it causes to the church. Let me clarify. Unity does not mean that we just sweep these things under the rug. It doesn't mean we can't have dis- disagreements. Uni- unity does not mean uniformity. But there's something to be said if we're going to prioritize what God has called us to. In fact, the men this weekend at man camp, uh, the speaker Brian Howard was talking about the gospel has implications for our lives. You realize that? Like the gospel is very simply this. The gospel is what Jesus has done for you. Jesus went to the cross in your place. No amount of good that we can do can make us right with God. The love of God sent his son Jesus to the cross in our place to die and to suffer for us. That means God loved us at our worst and chose to adopt us as his sons and his daughters. Like that is so great. That is what Christianity is all about. That is why we come together is to tell that message. But listen, if you receive that message, there are implications for our lives. It means we begin to see people the way that God sees them which means when we have some disagreements, problems within the church, the gospel has implications for how we interact with one another. Not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Walking in the spirit with love and joy and peace and patience and all those other things. Two little simple practical ways for us to prioritize the unity of the church when we could be grumbling and complaining against one another. I wrote these down for you. Number one, as far as possible, give the benefit of the doubt to other people's motives. As far as possible, give the benefit of the doubt to other people. I mean, I think about what's going on here and I'm like, the Hellenists are like, man, the taco truck missed my house again. Oh, they, they did it because they don't like me. They did it because they don't, they don't value me. They did it because of this or that. What are they doing? They're assuming motive. They're saying they did it because of all these reasons and their mind goes down. How many of us have been there? We get mistreated. Our mind goes down all the reasons why they mistreated us. No, as Christians, we're going to give each other the benefit of the doubt. In fact, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, I've been studying this with, with one of my friends. And 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And oh, what a horrible chapter. It is so hard to actually live that out. I mean, it's a great chapter. It's hard though. Because it says, love believes all things. You know what that means? Love believes the best in other people. Let's just be honest. Sometimes when someone spells the word wrong, isn't it easy for us to say, no, you're just trying to cheat instead of assuming the best in the other person? We're going to, value the unity of the church, we've got to give the benefit of the doubt to other people's motives. And number two, when you have a problem, you've got to go straight to the source. I can't say that enough. When we start grumbling and complaining, what do we naturally do? 
we call someone else. Oh gosh, man, let me tell you what happened. Let me t- the, uh, they drove that taco truck by and they missed our house, man. Oh man, how horrible. They're terrible people. What do we do? We complain to other people. We gossip. Can we call it what it is? We start telling other people because we want to be validated in how we feel. We want to gather a team around us to say, yeah, you see it the way I see it, right? Come on, let's, let's rally against each this wrong. No, Scripture actually calls us to, to, to go before the person and say, hey, this is what the problem was. Matthew 18. You've got a problem with somebody? What does Matthew 18 tell us to do? Call five other people. No, no, it doesn't say that. It says you go to the person and you tell them the wrong. Do you know how much trouble we could solve in our lives, let alone the church, if we embrace this idea of going straight to the source? I'm feeling preachy. I'm sorry, guys. Number one, value the unity of the church. Number two, value the main thing. In other words, keep the main thing the main thing. Again, because if God is at work in our church, if God is at work in your life, if God is at work in your family, Satan is going to do everything in his power to stop what God is trying to do. And I think one of the easiest ways for him to do that is to allow us to be sidetracked and distracted by lesser things. And I will say for me, You know, I'm thankful for the chance to look back at these past 10 years and maybe think about the times I got distracted. And here we are ready to celebrate 10 years and I am more passionate than ever about our mission of knowing Christ and making Christ known, about seeing God transform our city, seeing lives restored, seeing lives set free, seeing lives come to know the peace that God offers them that people would have not just life, but the life abundant that Jesus offers us. And I'll tell you what, I will say it again and again and again because I don't want us to be distracted from that. I want us to remember why we exist as a church. It's not to argue about who gets more ham or how we spell the word espresso. Our church, our mission, our mission is to see lives transformed, to see these kids come up here and tell stories of what God is doing. I... That's why we exist, and I want to see more of that. And if we're going to do that, number three, we've got to value the structure of the church. God gave us a structure so we can keep that main thing the main thing. I'm thankful for the elder team here at Restoration Church. These guys have a reputation to be known as servants. And it is so much fun for me to serve with these guys and it's been fun because in the last couple of months, we've had a lot of conversations on what is our role as elders? What is our job description? What are we trying to accomplish? What are we supposed to be doing? In fact, we've got an elders retreat here in a couple of weeks, and we're going to really try and put it down on paper. Like, what is our role as elders? How do we keep the main thing the main thing? How do we prioritize shepherding people, the word of God, and praying for people? How do we keep that as a focus? Because let's just be honest, there's a lot of churches have lost sight of that. 
Our elders become these uh, great leaders who are trying to be the, 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 the solve all the problems in the world. Instead of saying, no, listen, our priority is to teach the word of God, to pray for people, and to keep the church on mission. Which means, listen, if our elders are going to do that, if, if our leaders are going to do that, requires that everyone in here plays a part of the team. Mission of God doesn't move forward. The church doesn't become a movement with very few people participating. It takes everybody playing a part. Church is not a spectator sport. In fact, I heard it said like this in the church, not everyone does everything, but everybody has got to do something. So let me ask, what's your role in the mission of God? What are you doing in the church to, to put the mission forward? There are opportunities that are boundless in this church. I think, about, I think about this youth ministry up here and these kids, and I'll tell you what, it is remarkable what God is doing in this, in this youth group. It is remarkable. I, I'll tell you what, I want to be around them because of the energy they have and the passion they have. And do you know they don't have enough leaders? They're struggling with leaders because there's so many kids coming out of it. There's kids coming out of, they're climbing everywhere because that's what kids do, but they're just all over the place. We've got kids ministry leaders and they go crazy because, man, these, te these teachers got to serve three or four weeks a month because they need more hands. We're a church that's passionate about the next generation, but guess what? If we're going to continue to do that, it takes people. There are thoughtless roles in the church that we may think, oh, I, I, I'm more skilled than that. You know, I, I can't be an usher or a greeter. I can't serve a nursery because do you know my spiritual gifts? They're leadership and preaching and teaching and I'm, I'm, I'm greater than that. But what if there's just a need in the church? What if you were just like Philip and Stephen saying, hey, what's the need? How can I help the church move forward and stay on mission. And if that means I'm going to hold a baby, if that means I'm going to drive a taco truck, I'm in. There are needs in our church for, for, for tech people, for, for uh, slides people and social media and help in the office. There's set up and tear down. We've got a, a picnic in the park next Sunday. We need some folks to help set up the picnic and cook burgers. There are so many opportunities I'll invite you to step in and be a part of the solution. Be a part of the church moving forward. And certainly there are some leadership roles that are needed. There are lots of leadership roles around us. People like Stephen and Philip. But again, what was their reputation? Servant. What needs to be done? Driving a taco truck, I'm in. Maybe that's the first step for you. It's not to say, I'm so exceptionally gifted, I need to straight be a leader. Now, would you be a servant? Because the church, let's be clear, the church is a vehicle that God has chosen to change the world. God doesn't change the world through individuals. There's no, there's no Christian Avenger squad who's going out to change the world. That's not how God works. He chose to work through the church. He chose to work through you and me and all of us together in this room. And when we realize what is at stake, that God works through the church, 
Don't we fight to accomplish what God has called us to? Don't we fight to say, if God's going to use the church to change the world, to, to make disciples, man, I'm in. Whatever it takes, I'll fight for the unity. I will assume the best in other people. I'll go and have conversations when they wrong me and refuse to gossip. I will serve selflessly because the world longs for what the church is supposed to be. The world wants to be a part of that. Francis Schaeffer, he said this. He said, the love of the church is the church's most effective apologetic. When we value that, the world knows who Jesus is. Let me just close with this little picture of what the church can be. This is, comes from A.W. Tozer. He said, had it ever occurred to you that if there are a hundred pianos all tuned to the same fork, they're also automatically tuned to one another. They're of one accord. They're not attuned to each other. They're attuned to that standard, to that one thing. They individually bow to that. And, and because of that, they're tuned to one another. You know, that's what the church is. That as we are tuned to Christ and to the mission God has given us, when we are saying this is a priority, this is what's important, that when we focus on that, the rest of it, we become in tune together. Now, some of you are music people. I'm not. I can't carry a note. They won't let me be on the choir. I try. They, I try every week. I'm like, they let the kids be on the choir, but not me. Something's wrong here. When we are in tune with God, and the mission he has for the church, that's when we're in tune with one another. And that's when we become a beautiful symphony. And that's what I'm longing for in our church. Let's pray.